0: Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. As 2021 draws to a close, we thought it would be interesting to take a look back at some of the moments and themes that have shaped the face of history this year. Joining me to do so was Anna Whitelock, public historian and the author of BBC History magazine's Talking Points column. Where she takes a look at what the historical community are talking about online. To help us in this quest, Anna nominated a few subjects, some silly and some serious, that have made it onto the agenda of British historians in 2021. Thank you very much for joining me to have a look back at a couple of key moments and debates from 2021. So as well as being a public historian, you're a columnist for BBC History Magazine, and every month you write our Talking Points column. So we thought you were the perfect person to to do this for us, because in that column, you look at what people and public historians and historians generally are talking about in the world of history, especially on Twitter, and you've nominated some subjects for us to discuss today today. So, of course, this is not going to be a comprehensive overview of the year. Um, Nowhere near, in fact, but just a couple of moments that we're going to take a look back at that historians in Britain particularly have been talking about this year. So just generally, how has 2021 been for historians? What's been going on in the world of public history?
1: Well, it's been a weird year all round, I think, hasn't it? As we've sort of tried to come out of the pandemic, there's been a sense that in many ways, time has stood still. And then historians have been eagerly trying to get back to the archives and get back into the classroom. So it's been a, a funny old period. But at the same time, I think history has become ever more political. And you, know, you only have to read the newspapers or listen to radio programs. And so often the politicians are talking about history. And so there's been big questions and and challenges for historians and things to speak up on and speak uh, for. And I suppose one of those topics is the whole thing of statues and colonialism and all and, and all of that, which was something that has been brewing over a number of years. The report the National Trust report at the back end of last year, of course, into the links between historic properties and colonialism, kick-started a sort of sense of a pushback for some against what was regarded as a woke agenda, Um, whereas for others, of course, it was a timely and overdue need to re-examine um, the kind of fabric, the historical fabric of our of our country, and the links that it has with things like colonialism.
0: Yeah, so we'll delve into that discussion. In a bit more depth in a moment, but before we do, I'm just intrigued to how that's been as a as a historian that's worked in public history for many many years. What is it like to see your specialism suddenly kind of thrust into the mainstream and become such a flashpoint? I think for debate and discussion, is it exciting or is it you know tense?
1: Is it scary? It's I mean it's it's for me it's about what you know history is about and it's about why I teach it and why I study it because although it's about looking back, it's absolutely about speaking into the present and the future and thinking about what's happening, providing a bigger context and providing content and context to some of these big political and national debates. And I think in the last year, there's been words like wokeism thrown around and, you know, what does that even mean? And history wars and culture wars. Um, And this becomes a real challenge for public historians, which I think really all historians are really public historians, which is really about talking about what we do and then how we communicate that to a a wider audience, but also not just for kind of entertainment or education, but really importantly to inform public debate. And um, I think that that's sort of never more urgent than it is at the moment. And I would always say, you know, studying history is not about, you know, looking backwards, it's about being an engaged and active citizen and it's all about you know future proofing and providing context and answers and explanation for things and it's it's a radical thing to do it's activism learning is activism and understanding ourselves and where we come from and informing debates is you know is really important work so yeah it's been a challenging year but it's also a real moment for historians to you know, take the stage and inform um, the the big questions of the moment.
0: So one of these history wars, if we're going to use that term, moments that you nominated for us to discuss, there's kind of two arms of this really. One is a statues debate and one is a debate focusing on the National Trust. Um, So these debates have been rolling on since 2020, but what are some of the developments this year? Well, I think
1: in many ways the year kind of kicked off with the then- Secretary of State for Housing, Communities and Local Government, Robert Jenrick, introducing legislation to protect historic monuments. So, you know, you might see that as, you know, well, that's good, not controversial. But of course, the implications of that were very controversial because the, the, the line was, it was decreed by this legislation, this proposed legislation, that monuments and plaques should be kept and contextualised rather than removed. And that if they were going to be removed or there was some suggestion that they might be, they would have to go through a full planning process. And in fact, the then Secretary of State would have the final say on these things. And of course, you know, this comes on the back of the Edward Colson statue being taken down in Bristol uh, last year. The whole campaign around Oxford's Roads Must Fall movement, which led in May of this year to Oil College in Oxford voting to remove the statue but then the college declined to do so, saying that, you know, it would be too costly and that, you know, this wasn't something that they would support. So I suppose it's been all about whether statues stay where they are, get taken down, whose decision it is. And if statues do stay, what that then says about the kind of history that's being represented.
0: So this has obviously been a hugely divisive debate, especially in Bristol, where our team is actually based. But could you outline the two sides of this? What are the two arguments that are opposing here?
1: Well, I mean, we get to this sort of sense that um, for some people, you know, this line of the government, this new law that was being suggested, this idea that statues had to stay. In other words, the sort of policy was described as retain and explain. For some people, you know, this was uh, unnecessarily provocative, that it was a part of a kind of anti-woke agenda And that the government was stoking a culture war, you know, and for some people it was actually they saw it as a means to detract from uh, or distract from handling of the coronavirus pandemic. Um, So for some people this was just unnecessarily provocative, and it was just going against the other side of the argument, which is about the fact that oh, activists are asking questions about what these statues say about our history and how we should remember our history. And so, in a sense, this sort of this discussion, you know, has fallen into two camps. One, which is about trying to explain history, and in some sense, where appropriate, decide to take down the statues of people who were celebrated for things that we would now absolutely not want to celebrate them for, and others who say we should keep all of our history, all of our statues exactly as they are. And that there needs to be a very laborious process um, if they are to be taken down. So, and this has become, you know, this sort of war about wokeism and anti-wokism that seems to have dominated some parts of the news agenda.
0: When you sent me over some suggested topics for discussion for today, you put statues in the same in the same bracket really as a debate that's emerged around the National Trust. I wonder if you could tell us a bit about that and how you see it linking into this this broader story?
1: I mean, I think it's all about the ongoing conversation that we have in the present about our past and how we want to engage with our past and how we need to own our past and represent it. And, of course, the uh, the report at the back end of last year uh, into the National Trust properties links with colonialism for some people was just seen as, you know... Unnecessary, you know. Why on earth does this need to happen? This, this, this was just some kind of wokest driven agenda. Whereas, of course, other people would say this is really important, and the National Trust has a responsibility to to educate in the round and be open and upfront about where some of the money meant, you know, the, of the people whose houses they have in their possession, in which they open, and people trail around in their hundreds every year where that money came from and they need to tell a more holistic story. Um, so really it's about whether we want to, well, I suppose some people would say rewrite the past. Some people would say revise the past. Some people would say add appropriate context to our past um, and challenge and chip away at the the co- sort of commemorative legacy that we've inherited uh, from different parts of our history that in effect, misrepresent, um, in fact, what we were doing and what we were about at that point.
0: These are obviously debates that have rumbled throughout the year um, and erupted at various points. But where do you see them going? What do you think that we will see in 2022 in this, in this debate?
1: Well, I mean, I think these debates link into not only national conversations, but also now global movements which are engaging with histories of empire and and slavery. There's activists in other parts of the world campaigning around um, the removal of statues. So I think that in itself, the question of statues, is going to be a topic that that rumbles on. But I think, too, this link um, and this conversation we, we are having and we need to have about our past, particularly around issues of empire and slavery, and actually... That, in a sense, brings us to one of the other topics that I wanted to talk about, which was the decision in November for Barbados to sever ties with the crown. Barbados is one of 14 other countries um, around the world that retain the queen as head of state, including eight countries in the Caribbean. And for for many people, this uh, this decision by uh, the government of Barbados was about well, a rejection um, of Britain and finally a uh, a full acknowledgement of their independent status. They, of course, are an independent country, but they've remained having links with the crown. And that becoming a republic was a way of really moving on from their imperial past. And in all the discussions around that and um, the the ceremony whereby, which Prince Charles attended, there was all kinds of discussions about how the issues of, of race and slavery and empire were going to be uh, pl- at play in that moment of handover, how, whether the prince, prince Charles would acknowledge that, talk about it, which in fact he did. But for many people, um, and I'm leading a research project exploring the crown in the Caribbean during the Queen's reign, and what's interesting talking to people is, yes, for many it was about the fact that Barbados wanted to Fully embrace its identity and, in that way, become a republic. But so too was there this sense of the impact of of, of Windrush and a sense that the British Crown had let them down. And the issue of race was at play, and it did for many people motivate them. There was a sense that, at the time of the Windrush scandal in the UK, the Queen perhaps should have spoken out and done more. And that was certainly the. the Perspective that a number of different people shared. So, you know, these issues of relationships with the past and histories of empire and slavery and so on are at play in all kinds of ways at the moment. We've seen it in terms of statues, and here we see it in terms of Barbados's decision to become a republic.
0: I'm just interested in the Barbados question from your perspective as a royal historian, specifically as well. What does this tell us about the changing status of the, the monarchy, perhaps, or give us a new way of looking back on royal history?
1: I mean, it's the big question is, you know, will it precipitate a sort of domino effect now where other countries that retain the the crown as head of state, will they break now? I think it's more complicated than that. Different countries have different processes by which that would happen. So in some cases, there has to be a two thirds public referendum, for example. So it's not inevitable that it would happen soon. Uh, People have looked to Jamaica as being perhaps a country that has Repeatedly express its intention to become a republic, and so that could be next. And of course, we're at a point where the long reign of Elizabeth II will at some point come to an end. And I think people have just, you know, realised, of course, that this woman who's in her late 90s isn't going to live forever, um, and therefore questions have been raised: what the British monarchy is for, and how and how it should represent Britain if it can represent. A multi-ethnic Britain, both in the you know in terms of Britain, but also of course representing Britain around the world, and whether countries within the Caribbean and also Australia and New Zealand and Canada that also have the Queen as head of state, will they want to retain their links with the Crown? And so I think it's going to be really interesting, and it ties up with bigger questions that have also been at play this year about you know global Britain, um, which has become a sort of political term, and it's part of the government's post-Brexit. Strategy. But there's all kinds of implications of that in terms of the soft power that the monarchy brings. What might the implications be if a number of countries decide to break away from the crown? Will it matter at all? What kind of impact will the absence of the queen as this globally revered head of state have? You know, clearly she has pulling power. Unfortunately, she wasn't able to make COP26 this year. But she was at the G7 summit. She spoke uh, by video link to COP. She has in- incredible magnetism, and how far the monarchy is uh, wrapped up in brand Britain, I think, is is something that we'll begin to uh, we'll begin to see uh, and understand much more in the next few years. Still to come
0: on the History Extra podcast.
1: So we'll see. It could be a year of of change, but it could also be a year, dare I say it, where much of what we're talking about now, we're going to continue to be talking about then.
0: There's obviously been a lot going on this year. What else was on the agenda of historians and public historians that you wanted to talk about today?
1: Well, I think, I mean, the historians have been very busy writing in lockdown last year. And so actually we've seen brilliantly uh, the sort of fruits of their labours because there's been a whole load of books coming out um, with historians having given the been given the opportunity of lockdown in the midst of juggling all kinds of home education and childcare to actually finish their books. And so we've seen some brilliant books come out this year. Um, one book which I'm really enjoying, and in fact I'm um, uh, chairing an event for in the next day or so, What is History Now?, which was edited by Helen Carr and Susanna Lipscomb. Uh, And it was, of course, inspired by the text, What is History?, by E.H. Carr, all those years ago. And it really refreshes that thesis and that question for now and explores the importance and urgency of history, some of the things we were talking about just earlier.
0: What are some of the other issues that it touches on as well as, as ones that we might have already discussed?
1: So it's, I mean, it's history from all kinds of different perspectives. So, for example, talking about how we can write the history of disability does, or why family history matters, how making space for Indigenous peoples changes history. How can museums open the doors to the past, for example? Should history always be being uh, rewritten? Um, How can we recover the lost lives of women. Can and should we queer the past? Thinking about how you put back marginalised groups that have been missed out of the narrative. Thinking about history from a global perspective. So it it asks really, really urgent questions and it speaks very much, I think, to some of the the new ways of thinking about history, Um, not just by public historians, but all kinds of historians and how areas of history that have been under-researched are now being brought into the mainstream but in doing that ask questions about how that then impacts on the broader history historical narrative so that's certainly a really good book that i would say sort of captures the moment very well
0: are there any other books that have just um shared stories from history that perhaps we didn't know before that we should have done or perhaps just given a
1: really entertaining take on something that's new and fresh think there's been I mean a lot of that there's been an interesting one uh was uh Ruth Skur's book Napoleon a life in gardens and shadows and you know a book on Napoleon there's been very many of those but what's different here and Ruth Skur's always very good at sort of taking a quite familiar topic and doing something a little bit different with it and here she's written an account of Napoleon's relationship with horticulture thinking about the garden that he cultivated at school and then the garden that he uh, tended to at the end of his life on St Helena and so that's one that is a very you know familiar topic but has been rethought so that's that's very interesting but then there's also a book for example Virginia Postules, The Fabric of Civilization How Textiles Made the World which basically just looks at the importance of weaving fibers and looms and all of that to human progress and how important it has been across cultures so We've sort of biographies always do really well. Of course, we see biographies every year, but we see biographies that kind of look at things from a different perspective. Um, another one, Andrew Roberts, George II, The Life and Reign of Britain's most misunderstood monarch. So there's always biographies that try and, you know, set the record straight or do something different. And then there's books that come out sort of bring a whole different way of looking at things to the fore. I mean one another example would be Nutmeg's Curse: Parables for a Planet in Crisis and basically thinking about cl- climate crisis from the early modern era to the present day looking at things like the impact of war and industrialization on um different species thinking about um you know climate crisis over centuries. So Something like that obviously speaks very much to the present moment, but from a from a very his, historical perspective. And one book that's come out relatively recently and that's been that's been getting very good reviews is Malcolm Gaskill's book, "The Ruin of All Witches, Life and Death uh, in the New World." That came out in November, um, and it's basically a, a kind of account of a colonial witch hunt in 1651. It's it's dramatic, it's tense, uh, it sort of mixes real-life folk tales with sort of in previously neglected source material. It's all about the sort of precarious balance between life and death. There's a sort of family tragedy in the midst of it all. It's uh, really, really well-written. It's very compelling um, and it's also very insightful. So uh, that's that's another one which um, I've really, uh, really enjoyed. And I suppose finally, sort of slightly more modern book which has come out of the podcast tunnel 29 and this was this drew on a whole load of stasi documents and interviews with um surviving uh escapees and it this is um helena merriman who award-winning bbc journalist and she tells the story of the secret getaway tunnel um, which was dug under the Berlin Wall in 1962 and I listened to the podcast which was amazingly compelling and you know the book is is really one is, is definitely worth a read it's really fascinating tense interesting um and a real work of you know historical journalism I suppose so that would be another pick of mine
0: Yeah, fantastic. And if listeners are interested in the Malcolm Gaskell book about witches that you mentioned there, I actually had a conversation with him last month, which will be airing in January. So, so keep your ears peeled for that. Another thing that we've seen this year has been significant cuts to history courses and history academic staffs across universities. Can you outline what's happened and the, the implications really, or the impact of that?
1: Yeah so I mean it's been a really really difficult year of uncertainty for academics in UK history departments and I suppose the the headline department and institution was um which was Goldsmiths where uh, there are seven full-time historian posts were proposed to be cut in a department of 14. So basically slashing the department by half. And this followed other institutions that have also had to uh, cut back or end their history degree in the case of London, South Bank University, uh, Sunderland, uh, Aston, places also that have struggled. And I mean, there's been strikes this year um, and it comes at a time, of course, of great uncertainty, but also real challenge. And the problem is in many ways, systemic. There's been, for the last few years, declining numbers of history students. But at the same time, there's been an issue whereby his, when there hasn't been a cap on numbers, universities have kind of over-recruited and left, therefore, some other departments really struggling to get students. And this, the market has then got very skewed. And it's meant, therefore, that there's been um, departments that are really struggling to be seen to be viable by their academic managers. So um, I suppose there's a job of work there that we have to, within um, the academy, we have to understand the challenges that there are there. Although what's the good thing is that actually the numbers of young people taking history at school has been going up for the past decade. You know, the uptake at GCSE has has gone up 13%, I think, over the last uh, decade and so there's, you know, there there are, there are students, there are young people interested in history. What we then have to do is really communicate an understanding of why take, doing a history degree is important. And, and not just because of the, you know, critical thinking, the problem solving um, that is all very necessary for employers, but also some of the things that we've been talking about today, how it, it informs um, debate. It, provides context and content both for policy makers, but also for journalists, for uh, the heritage sector, for the the culture and creative sector. So it's really important for us to speak up about why history degree is really important. And I mean, I always say it's, you know, it is the ultimate passport for the future, which sounds like a a cliche, but within a history degree, there is so much um, that leaves you very well-equipped. To engage with the future, both as a sort of engaged and active citizen, but also as somebody looking to uh, get a job on graduation.
0: Of course, I mean, Corona has meant that redundancies have been seen in a lot of industries um, and many people have lost their jobs, got new jobs, and there have been cuts across various different industries. Do you think that history has been particularly hard hit or is it reflective of a wider situation?
1: I think, I mean, history has been, you know, in well, humanities, to be honest, has been more in the news that, than history. I mean, history numbers have been going down, but it's also been, I think, you know, there has been a bias in government against humanities subjects. Instead, there's, you know, been a great deal that has been said and done to champion STEM subjects, you know, the science and technology subjects. And, of course, the great irony is so many members of the government have, themselves are the product of humanities educations. I think we also need to change the conversation a bit. Humanities has has been lambasted somewhat by, by government. And actually, as we've talked about, so many of the big issues of the day need to be informed by a humanities education, whether that be, you know, history or English or languages too, really important. So I don't think it's about the pandemic. And I mean, it's, of course, absolutely also important to say that throughout the pandemic, academics have continued to work. And um, when they couldn't teach in the classrooms, they were teaching at home. And I was head of department at that point And, you know, absolutely know how much work it took for people to reorientate their teaching um, from the classroom online and and actually how engaged students were too. So to finish off,
0: let's move on to a slightly less serious and more silly subject, a fun one to end with. You have nominated Twitter's World Cup of Kings and Queens, which we saw running this year. What was it and what did you think of the outcome?
1: Yeah, this was an amazing story. This was uh, the poll on um, Greatest Monarchs that was um, led by Tom Holland and Dominic Sandbrook for their for their uh, podcast, The Rest is History. 84,000 votes were cast. Would you believe it that Elizabeth I, who almost always tops polls, although I'm, you know, even though I'm a Tudor historian, I always think that she's overrated. I think we should give her sister, the first Crown Queen of England, Mary Tudor, a bit of a shout out. But Elizabeth didn't even get uh, to the top spot. Tom Holland himself said, you know, he thought it would be a walkover for Elizabeth I, but he said the result was like Emma Raducanu going all the way at the US (laughs) Open uh, because the the winner uh, was the little known King Athelstan who united England in the the 10th century. Um, And so he was named top monarch ahead of Elizabeth I, ahead of Queen Victoria, ahead of Henry V. Um, yeah, would you
0: believe it? I know. So obviously this was just a bit of fun, really. But do you think it, it did throw up any interesting insights? Were people just trying to, you know, be provocative by rejecting the usual suspects and going for someone unusual?
1: Well, I think it's an interesting question. I mean, I think first of all, it shows people are interested and know more about history's cast of characters than perhaps one often thinks. I mean, when you talk to commissioning editors, they often think that people are just interested in, you know, the Henrys and Elizabeth and Victoria. But here we've got a little known king. I mean, there's a lot of people who wouldn't have heard of Athelstan, but actually here he is, one of the founding fathers of England, a, a great conqueror, uniting um, the country, merging the kingdoms of Mercia and Wessex, driving the Vikings out of Northumbria. And he's, he's the pick. He's seen as The Greatest Monarch. And I think what is interesting is how this, yeah, how this changes over the ages. I mean, I remember the BBC Greatest Britain's poll in around 2000, 2000, and um, certainly Elizabeth was up there. She might have even come first. Queen Victoria was up there. Athelstan was nowhere. So are people getting bored with the old favourites? Are they being a bit kind of um, provocative? Or are they genuinely interested Perhaps in this Anglo-Saxon king who, um, you know, by uniting England, does it say something about our um, our national identity and our desire to kind of go back and understand our origins? I don't know. It's an interesting one, isn't it? But certainly it was a surprise for me. So finally, if we would have this conversation at the end
0: of 2022, what do you think that we would be talking about?
1: I'd like to say we'll be talking about the pandemic as a a historical uh, reality rather than a present day one. But I think that might, so I think we'll still be talking about pandemics. I think we're going to be talking as we are now about England's or Britain's, I should say, place in the world. I think we're going to be talking more and more about the future of the United Kingdom, relations with Scotland and relations with Ireland. I think it's going to become more and more significant. I think China and our, our relation with China, and therefore our kind of historical understanding of our relationship with China is going to be important, um, important too, and indeed, uh, Europe. So I think we're going to be, I think it's going to be very much Britain having a bit of a an identity crisis um, continuing. And of course, if there was to be a significant change with the monarchy, then I think that would add to that sense of, sort of national turbulence. Um, but So I think pandemic, I think relations with Ireland and Scotland, our, our histories, our, our understanding of ourselves, and also our sense of kind of what's important to us and who are our national kind of historical figureheads. And I think the poll that we were just talking about with Athelstan beating Victoria and v- Elizabeth, what does that say about us? Does it say, is that just a flash in the pan or does that say something more interesting. And indeed, might it mean that we're going to see a big new history program on Athelstan? Are we going to start to see some of these more obscure uh, people in history uh, make it onto uh, the mainstream uh, history programs in a way that they haven't been to date? So we'll see. It could be a year of of change, but it could also be a year, dare I say it, where much of what we're talking about now, we're going to continue to be talking about then
0: was anna whitelock every month anna writes the talking points column for bbc history magazine where she takes a look at what the historical community are discussing online thanks for listening this podcast was produced by ben hewitt jack bateman and brittany collie